Exit for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to all new, all different Uncanny X's for Podcast, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title AIDS expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. And I'm Nico, and we hope you survive the experience. It seems like just a few weeks ago, we were talking about how someday John Byrne is going to be coming on the title, and here we are at the tail end of his run saying goodbye. The man's work at the time was innovative and strong and powerful, and it made him a legend. It has been an incredible ride since he joined Claremont in the final days of the original story that would be known as the Phoenix Saga. It marked a sudden change in the art. Dave Cockrum would stay on covers for quite a while, and it turns out Dave Cockrum stayed on covers to mess with Byrne a little bit. Jonah Kitty Pride just joined, and now we're saying goodbye to her co-creator, John Byrne. It's a sad day. Looking at John Byrne's art, it's something that really elevated the X-Men. Yes, Chris Claremont really had amazing stories, and the writing has continued to show improvement and really take off. Something I always say is, your story and your comic is only as good as your art can be. When your art isn't on par with your writing, doesn't matter how well you're writing it, no one's going to want to read it because no one's going to want to look at it. John Byrne created such amazing and beautiful art. It almost was just breathtaking to see some of the things he imagined and some of the things that he interpreted from a script. And I couldn't be happier to have the chance to read the comics that he drew. I completely agree. It was one of those incredible periods of synergy where two people came together and shared a vision, although it come to light that they didn't genuinely share a vision, and it was often one trying to outshout the other to have their ideas come across in the story. But from the outside, it seemed like the greatest partnership. It's a shame to say goodbye, but it's better that the partnership ended before it could have fallen apart. I will agree with you on that. Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants Reading List All the issues we'll be covering today are co-plotted by Claremont and Byrne, scripted by Claremont and art by Byrne. First, we'll be taking a look at Uncanny X-Men number 141 to 142, where the year is 2013. Kate Pride, with the help of a few surviving X-Men, sends herself back into her younger body in 1980, hoping to stop the Brotherhood from assassinating Senator Robert Kelly, ushering in the days of future past. Then we say goodbye to John Byrne in Uncanny 143, where it's Kitty on her own versus the demon. Days of Future Past is such a well-known arc that even casual fans are familiar with. Days of Future Past is going to be touched back upon in an annual crossover event known as the Days of Future Present, which is going to run through titles like Fantastic Four, The New Mutants. We're also going to see a number of ties 
to Days of Future Past in Excalibur, like issues 66 and 67, back to the present Days of Future yet to come, and issue 94. There's even going to be a prequel miniseries featuring Wolverine, as well as sequels like Hulk, Broken Worlds, Days of Future Past-esque Sentinel Camp Story, and the Years of Future Past Secret Wars. Jonah, when you sat down to read this story, you probably had some big expectations for it, especially with its incredibly well-known cover. I will say this. I actually didn't know what the story was actually about. I haven't seen the movie, and I haven't seen much of the animated series, but this was something that I knew by name alone meant something, and I really think it delivered up to what its name is. I went into this knowing nothing, but I think this was probably one of the most unique and most interesting arcs a comic book has taken. And just a story has taken that I've ever seen. And it was so, I want to say, genius to have Kitty be the star of this issue, but it's not her just yet. It's not quite her yet. What a great way to put that, because so much of what this arc deals with isn't Kitty. For that matter, we've barely gotten to know Kitty. We had her for a handful of issues early on in the Dark Phoenix saga, and we've had just a handful of appearances since that. So getting a future version of Kitty is so daring and so different than what we're used to already. Not just that, but everything about the cover is even confrontational. We're told that Cyclops dead, that Nightcrawler, Angel, Iceman, Beast, all of them dead. A number of X-Men are in custody and are apprehended. It's shocking to see. Within several pages, we see a number of tombstones that indicate the entire Fantastic Four have perished, as well as a number of other X-Men and mutants. It's a dark, terrifying look at what could happen if the Sentinels, who have been teased repeatedly, most recently in the Dark Phoenix saga by Sebastian Shaw talking to Senator Kelly, who was a major focus point in this arc, what danger they could pose if they really were truly let loose. Jonah, I know we've talked about how Sentinels sometimes are funny, silly, non-threatening, and other times how Sentinels are pretty fucking, you know, Stephen Lang giant Sentinel monster. I want to point to something that you said, that this is a very scary, dangerous issue. When we looked at the Dark Phoenix Saga, that itself was scary, having the most powerful cosmic entity we've known in the Marvel at that point in time go evil is very scary, but that didn't scare me as much as this issue and this arc, because the Dark Phoenix Saga is much more high fantasy scary. I don't expect someone to destroy an entire solar system and planet by absorbing a star and killing 5 billion people. At least I hope not. But... Days of Future Past was an interesting political showing off Big Brother of what could happen with politics and propaganda and fear-mongering and what that all means and how it can shape the future. And it's really telling this story was in the 80s, and it's something that you can almost compare to now. And it's similar to the effect of what 1984 did how dark the future can be. And darkness is absolutely the name of the game. There was no chance that they were playing it safe. The idea that there is a secret group that the government doesn't realize operates behind closed doors and are members of, like the Hellfire Club, creates the idea of the unsettling menace. One of the most dynamic things 
about Days of Future Past is just how many new ideas it introduces. It doesn't just play into that dark, scary atmosphere, but it gives us our first Claremont-era bit of X-Men time travel. It gives us new faces in the future. It makes Magneto a good guy, and we get such contrast to what we're used to now, like a new brotherhood led by Mystique. This is a massive shift from the Brotherhood led by Magneto, though the level of infighting is very consistent with what we should be used to. Now, I don't know the original story of where the Brotherhood came from in the original 60 X-Men issues, but seeing this and seeing this infighting of Mystique's plan of rounding up these villains and playing an assassination of Senator Robert Kelly, I'm almost amazed that it actually went through, and I have to attest that them being uninterrupted. They weren't stopped in the timeline that Kate comes from. So it's pretty, it's just interesting that 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 theme, that the Brotherhood kind of bickers and kind of can't almost work together, is still in this new Brotherhood, even though it's under new management, so to speak. And it's a dynamic shift from Magneto's desire to overtly take over the world. Mystique is eager to work in secret and ply her trade in the darkness. We saw a preview of Mystique's desire to form the Brotherhood again when Blob broke out at the end of Kitty Pride's first arc. Here we see Blob join the Brotherhood, but not before getting one of the most iconic images in X-Men training history. That shot of Kitty as the X-Men train in the danger room just before Kate takes over her body is so classic and so iconic. I think it encapsulates everything we love about Kitty and the excitement of being young and new. We can't see her face, but she clearly is so taken off guard. And so much of that expression is what defines Burn. Once Kate is in control of younger Kitty's body, there is a dramatic shift in her facial expressions that can only be attributed to the pain that she's experienced having grown up in this terrible timeline. I truly believe Claremont was able to craft a character totally different from Kitty Pride regular for this. It's very ballsy to give characterization to a brand new character, but it's not exactly them. And through the events of the X-Men succeeding, that's not exactly who Kitty's going to become now, because that timeline no longer exists as far as we're aware right now. I have no idea what's going to happen in the future, but it's... You bring such a great point. It's the detail of Kitty's expression. Kitty, before being taken over by Kate, is a lot more jovial, bubbly. She's constantly smiling, and she has a very eager, almost naive demeanor about her. But when she's changed into Kate, it's very stoic, serious... And when she sees Nightcrawler, when Kate sees Nightcrawler for the first time again, you can see the genuine happiness and the almost like welling up that she might cry of seeing one of her closest friends again. It's truly remarkable what you can do. And I have to give I give credit to Byrne for the beautiful artwork, but I give credit to Chris for taking that risk and giving us characterization of what the future of a character could have been. And it's one of the things that I love about Claremont and Burns' 
collaborative storytelling is just how tightly they're able to pack in their story. One of the things I noticed is how often we cut back and forth between the future and past, and every single moment is made to count. We even get a bit of Xavier and Moira, which... I'm starting to think that Moira is just always in this title, which I love. I think Moira's great, and I appreciate having more positive, strong women in this title. But it does seem like they make a big deal about how often she goes away for her to never really be gone. The treatment of the ancillary, auxiliary X-Men characters is they all claim, all right, bye, but they don't ever really leave. We see it with Havoc and Polaris, who are now on your island. We see it with Moira. Nobody ever technically really leaves the X-Men, no matter how often they try to leave and say bye. I mean, we saw it with Jean. (laughs) No one's allowed to leave. Once you're in the X-Men, you stay in the X-Men, unless you have your own title. We even see it a little bit with Scott, who's going to call into the X-Men later on this episode and check in with Kitty and see how things are going. He's starting a new life somewhere else, and he's already calling home to see how everything is. But it's even interesting that Scott misses Days of Future Past. When you think of the X-Men and their leader, you think of Scott Summers, Cyclops, but here he's not even present. One of the things I love the most about this story is how well it showcases all of the X-Men and how quickly it moves from element to element. One of the things that I find frustrating about this era of X-Men is the villains are usually just dicks. There's really not much to them. They're just kind of assholes. And here, that's generally what we've got, but at least their power set makes them threats. Yes. No one on this new Brotherhood feels to me like either a pushover or someone who can't do damage, even if they were by themselves. There were a couple of ex-villains that we've had that were a little generic, and the Brotherhood definitely does come off as a threat, even if they are just evil, and even if they don't have much more outside of being general dicks. It's still a plausible and dangerous enough threat that I can buy it, and I am heavily rooting for the X-Men to win. I appreciate that Claremont tries to make it easy to follow along with this new team. He says in the incredible splash page that follows the opening shot of Kitty, Of the original Brotherhood, only the Blob remains, joined by now the blind precog Destiny who can see the future, Pyro, Master of the Living Flame, Avalanche, whose touch disintegrates inanimate objects, and the group's leader, the mysterious shape-changer called Mystique. It's very helpful because he cycles through these villains so quickly, and Claremont often has cited that he gave this person development here or there with one smart line, and it's true. It's there to point to. But having this to point back at, okay, Avalanche kind of sounds like he can make like a big rumble, like a snow avalanche. Okay, I follow that. Makes it a bit easier. This splash page is also terrific because it gives us everything we need. We see Destiny, Pyro, Avalanche, Mystique, and Blob versus Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Storm, Kitty as Kate Pride, Colossus, and Angel with Senator Kelly in the background. It's not very long before we see Xavier and Moira just two pages away, which helps remind us exactly what's going on. We get the brief recap that tells us the future and that Kate was sent back to the past. We see a little bit more of the future. It's just so well done. I can't believe how tight all of the narrative is. It does make the second issue feel underwhelming compared to the first, I think, because the first is full of so many shocks. This second one paying off all of that story almost feels a little hollow. I do agree with you, but I think you really hit something that 
I noticed about this arc and why I think it's so successful. A lot of my complaints of the X-Men have been, it seems like it takes a lot of issues for something big to happen. I say that so much happens, but yet not enough happens. It's too many little things that then will eventually become one big thing, which if that's your style, that's your style. But in these two issues, in this small arc, I don't think that, as you said, a moment was wasted. We get everything we need to understand who these people are, what their goal is, and how they're going to achieve it, whether it's the Brotherhood or it's the X-Men. And I really have to commend that a serious, interesting story was done in only two regular X-Men issues, as opposed to having a lot more pages like an annual issue or spreading it out over multiple issues like the Dark Phoenix Saga. I think they just did that really well. They we're able to tell a compelling story in only two issues. And it's because they utilized everything they could by establishing that Kitty was now married to Colossus in the future. We were able to understand seeds of that relationship without having to hit us on the head with it. One of the things they did hit us on the head with this issue was everybody dies. And oh man, in the future, does everybody die? We get so much darkness and heaviness from this two-parter so quickly on the heels of Dark Phoenix Saga, it's down to the fact that we get that hint of Nightcrawler and Mystique, that strange connection that they introduce. We have just seen Margali Zardos, and for Mystique to reference her after taking Nightcrawler's shape is a very interesting connection to lay out here for those two. Yes, and it almost makes sense when you look at Mystique I don't think I put the dots together until it's pointed out by Mystique and Nightcrawler that they look alike. And it's as you said, it's Mystique calling Margali out by name. She doesn't just say, ask your adoptive mother or ask that demon ass sorceress. She calls Margali out. And I think that's a very interesting detail to show where these two characters are going to intersect in the future. It's a much more obvious seed than other things we've gotten, but it's still an interesting seed to plant. Ultimately, Kate Pride is the one who saves the day by phasing through destiny, causing her to miss Senator Kelly. The question of whether or not they change the future, and they assume that Kate Pride and Kitty switching back means that the future has been changed, but the very last thing we get is Sebastian Shaw, Senator Kelly, and Henry Peter Gyrich discussing how they can best eliminate the mutant threat permanently. We're definitely getting a sense of that hated and feared era here. From there, we take a short holiday break. Now, this is the most unusual holiday story I think the X-Men have done to this point, where we get a brief flashback to when the X-Men battled the Angari demon just after Thunderbird's passing. The recollection of that account is so interesting because all they tell is Storm's destruction of the Demon Karn. We actually get a really terrifying sequence after that where the demon comes upon some campers and truly devours them. This is one of the most incredible Kitty Pride stories. It's so fascinating. And we've complained a bit that we haven't had enough Kitty. That first two-parter focused on Nightcrawler and Logan for all the action. Then we had the Days of Future Past story, which was a different version of Kitty. Here, Kitty Pride is front and center. How did you feel about seeing Kitty kick ass on her own? All this issue proved to me is that Kitty has found her home, or a home at least, because it, from what it seems, she has a good relationship with her parents, that she belongs on the X-Men. She's quick, she's clever, she's willing to do what's necessary 
to save her new home in the X-Mansion. Almost basically save the world because this demon slash alien looking thing comes off very powerful that's able to damage her while she's phased. You get this threat that Kitty can't protect herself from. I think this issue did everything right and what we needed to understand who Kitty is as a person and she will cement herself as a member of the X-Men. She's quick, she's intelligent, she's funny, she's all these different things that you need to be to be an X-Men. And I think this issue was really just driving it home to make sure that we the readers know this is where Kitty belongs and she's here to stay. And they managed to do so in just a few pages of character development and a number of pages that are basically the last 10 minutes of Ailey. It is straight up Ailey. I think it's so funny. There's actually a quote from John Byrne where they say that they thought they were just doing a loving tribute. My favorite thing is that he didn't, that he didn't think people would notice. Yeah. <laughs> it looks but like a xenomorph. They also managed to pack in an unbelievable number of guest stars, whether it's Lady Mariko or Kitty's family showing up. This issue sets up so many of the relationships that define the next era of X-Men, including giving us a bit more about Kitty and Colossus, which I appreciate. The Merry Christmas sexy moment is a famous moment for so many fans. Less famous is Wolverine losing his shit trying to attack Kurt for giving an innocent kiss to Mariko on the cheek under some mistletoe? Yeah, I can almost read this as... I know that Logan really does like Lady Mariko, and he's very smitten with her, but I can almost see this as unresolved feelings of losing Jeannie, and why he's blowing off the handle a little too fast, because you're right, Logan wouldn't be this hot-headed that fast and out to kill Kurt. I agree. Speaking of things going a little fast, we see a brief glimpse of Scott, and he has already moved on to Lee Forrester. She's a great character, and we will get some amazing appearances from her, but man, Scott cannot stay single for very long. No, everyone is just attracted. It's that sad boy magnetism. Everybody just wants him. He's just so damaged, and they just want to fix him. To touch on something that we commented on several episodes ago in the Dark Phoenix classic story where they make it clear that Proteus is dead and Moira's not bringing him back, I made a note that I thought it was a powerful statement that it's a clear victory and that he will not be coming back. There is no fear that Proteus is resurfacing. I love that this issue ends, that Kitty Pride has passed the test and defeated the Ingari, especially because it is ultimately Burns' final issue. It does have a sense of beautiful finality in that regard. And to that end, I've actually gotten together some quotes about John Byrne's departure. So, when asked by former editor-in-chief of Marvel, Tom DeFalco, when you and John Byrne first took over the X-Men, you mentioned you guys had a good report. What happened? Claremont said, honestly, I don't know. I do not know what the hell happened to this day. John got royally pissed off at me, but he never told me why, directly or indirectly. We had a good synergy with Roger Stern as editor, less so with Jim Scalacrip. When Louise Jones Simonson came in as editor, I guess he figured that she was more simpatico with me, and that's when he decided he wanted to move on. You'll have to read John's autobiography to find out what pissed him off. I just know that it was so major that the last 30 years haven't smoothed things out between us. I think he always felt that he was the one actually plotting the book, but I wasn't giving him credit for it. I just figured it was a collaboration. 
The line of division between aspects of contribution was hard to separate, especially when you're talking about a relationship that was freewheeling as they were in those days. Sometimes I look at a sketch and say, hey, that's a great character, why don't we make something out of it? I got this idea where you could blah blah blah. The next thing you know, we got a 12-part epic. Claremont makes it sound like he cannot possibly imagine how this went down, but oh man, does Byrne have a very different account of things. Byrne makes the statement that he created Kitty Pride. When questioned about it, he says yes, in her original form. She mutated quite a bit since. Chris wrote her differently from how I'd intended her to be, which is maybe the disadvantage of the pencil's plot approach. What would often happen is I wouldn't actually see the script until it was printed. He was asked what he originally intended for Kitty and said, I wanted her to be a totally normal teenage girl who wakes up one morning and has superpowers. Her biggest problem is in the world would be maybe acne, then sproying. She has these powers. But Chris made her a genius, and I said, if she's a genius, she's not totally normal. It's not exactly a secret that we'd butt heads a great deal, but I think the butting always was to a creative end. John makes it sound kind of positive at that point, but later on, he would go on to say, I know exactly why I left. Chris and I were kind of getting further and further apart on who the characters were and what the characters were all about. When Roger Stern was our editor, he worked closely with Chris to make sure the stories came out as close to a Chris and I plotted as possible. Jim Scalacrup, who replaced Roger, sort of leaned toward my camp. Then Louise Simonson came in as the editor, and she came from the school of thought that says the writer is the important guy. All of a sudden, I had no power. I started to develop what I called my ARG moment, which is, how deep can I delve into this issue before I hit something that makes me go ARG? There was one in particular where Colossus is pulling a tree trunk out of the ground with a chain on the splash page, and I went ARG right on the splash page because of the way Chris wrote it. I said, okay, this is obviously telling me that it's time to go. There was also a little piece off to one side where Chris and I argued a great deal about who the characters were and how the characters act, and what they would say and what they would do, and I realized that the Chris version of the characters was what was seeing print. The way Chris wrote it was what was seeing print regardless of what I had thought in my head and while I was drawing the pages. So if I didn't like what Chris was doing, that meant I didn't like the characters. So when I hit that arg moment, I basically picked up the phone and called Louise and said I can't do this anymore. I was originally going to stay on for another couple of issues, but ultimately I didn't. The characters deserved better than for me to turn in what was going to be a whole lot less than my best work. So I just left. So of course, I needed to know what Louise Simonson thought about this, having been the editor on the title when the greatest partnership on the book thus far fell apart. She said, I thought, oh my god, I've broken the X-Men. I've been given this perfect gem of a book and I broke it. I have allowed John Byrne to go away. I was just completely appalled. I love John's stuff and I liked John personally. I was really unhappy about the split between the two creators, but I do think it was inevitable. Jonah, you just read all of this stuff as it happened in print. What is it like hearing these two different creators and the people around them respond to this dynamic? Well, it makes me think of this saying that there's always three sides to the story. There's side A, side B, and then there's the truth. And there's something almost hysterical to me of Chris Claremont marching to the beat of his own drum so viciously that he's so unaware of any issues that he can possibly be causing. Like, I, I, that level of almost delusion and unawareness is fascinating that someone can reach, that he has no idea why John Byrne would want to leave, and like 
that they were pretty amicable. I think that's pretty hysterical. Especially because everybody around them is like, yeah, it was just a matter of time. And Chris is like, I don't know why we're not still partners. It is... I also think, knowing that John Byrne would go on to write just about every title he would work on is fascinating. John Byrne would go on to write and do the art on Alpha Flight, Fantastic Four, and an extended run on Superman, just to name a few. So John Byrne would not relinquish writing duties again after this for some time. X-Rex with Matthew. Here at X is for Podcast, we've had an incredible time telling you all about the 1970s and 80s in Marvel, but there's a whole lot more than that available for Marvel Comics, especially on the Marvel Unlimited app. For that, we're going to be turning to our friend Matthew to bring you X-Rex every uncanny episode. Take it away, Matthew. Hello, listeners. I'm Matthew, and I'm back with another X-Rec for your reading pleasure. Today, I'm bringing you X-23, Innocence Lost, a six-issue miniseries focused on, as the name would imply, X-23. For those of you who are unfamiliar or need a refresher, X-23, otherwise known as Laura Kinney and or Wolverine, genetic female clone of the original Wolverine. She debuted in the X-Men Evolution cartoon before crossing over into the comics. Like Wolverine, she has a healing factor in claws. The differences, besides her being, you know, a girl, are that she only has two claws on each hand and one on each foot, rather than just the generic three that Wolverine has on both hands. And in her case, only her claws are covered in adamantium, rather than her whole body. As such, her healing factor is noticeably faster than Logan's, though she's also less directly durable as a trade-off. Yay for weird sexual dimorphism and mutants, I guess? I will say up front that while I love this story, Billy Tan's penciling is not for me. More power to you if you enjoy it, it's certainly serviceable, I just don't see the appeal in his style. Also, I do want to throw out a small content warning for the comic itself, as there is an explicit depiction of self-harm. Innocence Lost is X-23's origin story. This explains how and why she was created, where she comes from, surprise surprise, not Weapon X in this case, how she got her name, and why she eventually ends up with the X-Men. This is also the comic that the Logan movie took a heavy dose of inspiration from, though with some fairly radical alterations. For example, in the movie, X-23 is sedated when her claws are coated in adamantium. In the comic, Xander Rice, one of her creators and certified biggest douche in the universe, makes sure to keep her awake during the extremely painful procedure. Charming, right? Trust me, that's one of the less awful things he does in this story. The major players here are Dr. Martin Sutter, who runs the quote-unquote facility, and is otherwise a fairly meaningless, mustache-twirling villain. The aforementioned uber-douche, Xander Rice, who is responsible for most of X-23's programming and trauma, Sarah Kinney, and Hint, geneticist responsible for figuring out how to clone Wolverine from a damaged DNA sample, and to a much lesser extent X-23 herself. Normally I would complain about the title character being mostly a plot device, but here it makes sense. X-23 is a plot device, much more than an actual person for the majority of the story. Her humanity is in question until the last couple of chapters. Hell, up until the last issue of the series, she has few, if any, lines of dialogue at all. The story centers on the fight between Sarah, who pushes for X-23's humanity, and Xander, who wants her to be nothing more than a weapon, sold to the highest bidder. For something so seemingly black and white, Innocence Lost manages to hold a surprising amount of grey morality. Not with Xander. He's a monster. 100%. But Sarah? She's interesting and conflicted and does things that are far from pure and innocent. To her credit, she recognizes that in herself, though. She wants X-23 to be a person, but winds up using her just like anyone else in the facility. In many ways, Innocence Lost is a quote-unquote sins of the father story. Xander abuses X-23 in a twisted means of vengeance against Wolverine who killed his father, and he meets a similar fate in one of the most cathartic moments in comics history. Sarah fears becoming her father, but winds up being guilty of similar faults and sins, and X-23 is a literal clone of the man she will eventually see as a father, 
though not here in the story. I won't get into too much by way of spoilers, but I will say this. This book is beautifully and tragically bookended by Death in the Snow. And the one big spoiler I'll give is of the final quote-unquote big moment of the series, when X-23 is finally given the name Laura, will gut you. It's a short series, but essential reading for anyone interested in Laura Kinney. And there are numerous callbacks to it in the recent all-new Wolverine and X-23 series. With that, I bid you adieu until next time, where I'll bring you the fall of an original X-Man. As always, you can find me on Instagram at UppityLittleHomo, that's U-P-P-I-T-Y-L-I-T-T-L-E-H-O-M-O. Happy reading! Mutant Mental Health with Dr. Matt. Here at X's for Podcast, we're not just about the fun of the X-Men comics, but we're also about the well-being of the X-Men reading audience. It is to that end that we are excited to announce our newest feature, featuring Dr. Matthew James Connor. Hello again, I'm gay geek psychiatrist Dr. Matt Connor, and this is a tiny dose of Merry Mutant Mental Health, a segment where we talk a little bit about the mental health issues inspired by some of the X-Men comics Nico and the team are reading on X's for Podcast. This legendary story, Days of Future Past, introduces us readers to the apocalyptic nightmare of the X-Men's future, miserable world of genocide and anger. Kitty's coming back to the present day from it in this story, and we'll see Rachel Summers as a major character in upcoming issues as a survivor of this same dystopia. Okay. In talking about Days of Future Past, the important thing to cover is trauma. So, content warning. If a discussion of trauma is not good for you right now, make no apologies. Just skip ahead about three minutes, okay? Okay. Trauma is a word that has changed meaning from the mental health standpoint over time. Freud figured that mom having your little brother instead of just being satisfied with you as her only kid counts as a trauma. And over the last few decades, that's gotten more and more strict. The version of the DSM, the book that outlines how we're supposed to define and diagnose mental illness, the one right before the current version, said trauma has to be a time where you legitimately thought that you were in danger of dying, and anything else didn't really count. But in the current edition, that definition is much more flexible. To get into it is a little bit much for this one segment, but the short answer is it counts as trauma as long as it overwhelmed you then and haunts you now. This is an amazing evolution in the way that we think about and treat people who are suffering with post-traumatic stress. It means that more people can get access to care. See, in the old way, you have to prove to me that your brain thought it was going to die. You had to show me the sentinel attack. You had to draw me that giant robot blasting Wolverine into ashes with hand lasers. It has to be like a dystopia, future, something horrible for it to even count. And I could change your diagnosis if I thought you were just being whiny or dramatic. And that's not true anymore. Now, all that matters is your perspective. I don't have to agree with whether I'd have been scared of the same thing. I don't have to fact check your report against public records. If something happened that was overwhelming, and it haunts you in dreams or looping thoughts or a change in your behavior or a change in your belief system, you have trauma. You get to say that, not me. I can help you understand what trauma means. I can help you understand how it's impacting you, whether medication is a reasonable part of your plan to get healthy, which types of therapy are going to be the most effective. I can help you feel less alone, but you no longer have to prove anything to me. And let's be real, you never did. It's just canon now, and that's pretty cool. In the future, we're going to talk in these segments about what trauma like this does to a brain, what kind of haunting we're going to get from it. And we'll talk about treatment and we'll talk about coping and we will get to this, I promise. But for now, on this first time, we're going to skip ahead if that's okay with you, because this has a happy ending and the X-Men show us how to do that. See, this is the most important part. If you hear nothing else, hear this. They go through their trauma as a team. 
There's more than one of them. I promise you, I don't know you, but I can promise you there is nothing out there that you can't weather a little bit better with your hand in somebody else's. For now, that might mean paying a therapist or joining a group or going to church, helping you to build a safe network of your own. See, I may not know what you're going through. I might not be especially strong, but you are not alone. And I will repeat that. You are not alone. See, something was trauma by this current definition because it was bigger than you, but no way is it bigger than us. And I'll stop there. But you can follow me on Instagram at Matthew James Connor. That's M-A-T-T-H-E-W-J-A-M-E-S-C-O-N-N-E-R for a couple of cosplay pictures, I guess. Mostly cute pictures of my dog. I'm not really all that active on social media, but see you next week. We got to discuss John Byrne's legendary final three issues with Chris Claremont on Uncanny X-Men. We got some phenomenal X-Rex from Matthew Scott, as well as a Mutant Mental Health Minute from Dr. Matthew. All in all, I'd say that was a pretty successful, all-new, all-different Uncanny X's for Podcast Variety Hour. Jonah, it's been incredible getting to talk about these books with you, as always. I am further enamored of the amazing X-Nerd you've grown into. It's pretty wonderful to hear me become very snobby about this material. (laughs) I enjoyed it very much. If you're enjoying what you're hearing here, we're actually discussing the adaptations of The Phoenix over on HTML, Husbands Talking More or Less, the show I do regularly with Kevin. And Jonah just appeared on our X-Men the Animated Series Phoenix episode. And it was great hearing him talk to Kevo about, oh, this is correct. Well, they changed that. Well, this is a little bit different. It was great to hear that I'm not the only one with all of that knowledge now. And until you're back on air to share that knowledge, Jonah, where can everybody find you? If you would like to find me and reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. You know, I'm glad to be home on X's for Podcast. I'm glad to be talking about these great characters. And I'm, it's a very bittersweet goodbye to John Byrne and his amazing art, but I'm ready to see where this new the new artists are going to take the X-Men. Nico, where can everyone find you? Well, until we come back to talk about the new artist, who's actually the old artist, Dave Cockrum... You can find me over, like we said, on HTML or now and again where I talk about pop music with my childhood best friend Chris in the form of the Now That's What I Call Music collection. You can also check me out on Instagram over at Nico Action, where I post pictures and videos of myself singing, as well as my amazing, diverse, inclusive comic Kid Riot over at KidRiotComics.com. All right. Until we come back, keep those X genes cracking. See ya!